Just as Jesus is going from the upper room down to the garden in Gethsemane, he leaves the room, it says, and he starts walking through the valley. And, and in John chapter 15, I believe he stops in a vineyard and he, he stops to his disciples and gives them some of the very last words. And, and he talks about their life and what it's going to be. And in that, he frames it up with what I see very similar to the four chairs. He says, talks about no fruit and fruit and more fruit and much fruit. But then he makes a statement that's powerful. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But he said, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. You see, based upon John 15 and other passages, I'm convinced God's agenda for every one of us is to get us to chair four. Because there's something changes in our relationship with God when we move into chair four. We see this also in that same passage in John 15. Right after this, Jesus goes to his disciples in John 15, 15. And he says, I no longer call you workers. I call you friends. Well, it's really good to see all of you here this morning. We're winding up our series uh, this morning on the four chairs. And... At the end of your row, it should be one end or the other at this point in time, uh, there should be cards that look like this or just plain three by five cards, whichever the stack is. Take it, pass it on down the row, take one, all right? And uh, some of you will remember this card from last year uh, when we finished up our One Life, which this is still a part of that One Life series. You may have put a name on that card. So, while the sermon is going on this morning and while uh, you're, you're contemplating and praying, I want you to think about the name you put on it last year. If, you, if that's still the same name you're working on, put it on this card. All right. If, if you're new to the congregation, say, what in the world is a one life? A one life is the person that we identify as somebody in our circle of influence that we want to be building a relationship with, building a friendship with, with the hope and the goal that eventually we can discuss spiritual things with them and point them to Jesus Christ. And so if you have not done this yet, pray about that name and put that name on there. Just first names only. We just, we don't need last names. Just first names uh, will be sufficient. If you've finished up with one life uh, and, and you've added another, put a new name on here. Or if you've got more than one, put two names on. Wh whatever it is that's going on in your life, be sure and put that name on that card. And then at the end of the service, while we sing our final song, we're going to, there's four boxes up here on the platform. Uh, and we're just going to ask you to come and drop those cards in these boxes as a way of making a commitment to say, I'm moving to chair four. Now, for the last four weeks, we have been exploring this journey of discipleship through this metaphor of chairs. Now, remember these chairs. There is the seeker's chair, then there's the believer's chair, then there's the engager's chair, and this week is chair four, the disciple maker's chair. We thought a lot about what kind of a chair can we use to symbolize a disciple maker's chair. And we finally hit upon a stool with a basin and a towel. The picture of a servant leader who invests time, energy, and life in others. We chose this because it is symbolic of what Jesus did on the very night before he went to the cross. You'd think with everything else going on in his mind that the last thing he would want to do would be wash the feet of the disciples. And yet as, a, as an example, as a model to them of what it means to be a servant leader, the very king of the universe went around the table and wash their feet. 
Now, folks, this is not about washing feet. That was a custom of that day and time when people came in from the dusty roads. It was a refreshing moment. What we're talking about, though, is the servant heart, the servant attitude that says, I will put others first. I will make a difference in the lives of those around me. This may well be, this, this chair here, this may well be the most important chair of the four, the disciple maker chair. And you say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. What about moving from seeker to believer? Isn't that the most important one? Well, yes. If you don't move from the seeker's chair to the believer's chair, none of the rest of the chairs matter. Okay? Moving from that chair to being a follower of Jesus Christ, that does matter the most. But in, in the scope of the chairs, as we've been looking at a spiritual journey, this is the most important chair. This is where you want to end up. Because, see, if we don't move out of chair one or chair two or chair three, we never get to the most important one. Let, let me explain what I mean by being the most important one. This week I was standing in line at a gas station with a, with a gentleman I did not know. You know, I have those moments you just kind of try to, well, be casual in your conversation. And I just looked at him and said, how you doing? And without hesitation, he blurted out, I'm overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated, but thanks for asking. Now, I'm not often at a loss for words, but I didn't know exactly what to say at that moment. But let me borrow his response and tweak it just a bit as an answer for why chair number four is the most important one in our discussion. Because it is the most overlooked, underutilized, and underappreciated chair of the four. Whereas the seeker's chair, that camp chair, gets folded up and taken so many places on the journey, it's worn with the use of time. This chair, this fourth chair is hardly used. It still has that new chair smell. And yet, and yet the Lord wants this to be the most frayed and tattered chair of the four. I had a professor in college who taught, it is more important to make a soul winner than it is to win a soul. In other words, my role should be devoted to equipping others to become disciple makers, not spending my time trying to reach people. I really struggled with that at the time. I still struggle with that. I understand what he means. I really do. I understand what he, what he meant by, by that. I don't think it's the best way to word it. You see, because from my understanding, it's not, a, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You know, I know people who, who look at this and, 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 they, and they argue about which is the most important. I like what Dan Spader says. He said, we are to make disciples who can make disciples. You see, it, it's, it's, it's not the either or, it's a both and. Some might argue that reaching people for Christ is the most important. Others will argue, no, no, it's growing them in Christ. Because if you just reach them but you don't grow them in Christ, it doesn't do any good. I, I think they are the two wings of the same airplane. When I occasionally rent a small plane at the airport and go flying, I'm never partial to one wing or the other. I never look out the right window and say, right wing, you are my favorite wing. <laughs> I just know this, without both wings, you're never going to get off the ground. So this whole quest in the fourth chair is about reaching people for Christ and then growing them in Christ. And all of that happens as we're striving for this chair. Think of it like this. In chair one, I search for the truth as a genuine seeker. In chair two, I embrace the truth as a genuine believer. In chair three, I engage the truth by genuinely learning and doing. In chair four, I teach the truth as a genuine servant of Christ in word and deed. Here's another way to think of it. Through the chairs, we move from being an infant to being a parent. 
As the disciple maker, we are helping others grow in their faith. As earthly parents, we certainly want our children to grow up strong and healthy. Should we want anything less for those in the family of God, God's children? You see, it's about spiritual mathematics. Are we multiplying the faith? Most people know, uh, that I know, at least are concerned about leaving some kind uh, of, of a legacy behind. You know, most of us want to be remembered in some form or fashion. Uh, in our home, we have some pieces of furniture uh, that were built by my great-great-grandfather, Carl Afinger. Uh, we have a couple pictures, I think, uh, to show you. These, uh, the, the pie safe and the china hutch and that little table there with the lamp on it were all built by my great-great-grandfather, probably more than 125 years ago. There are other family members that have pieces that he built, too. My grandparents were really good about keeping that furniture in the family. I suspect he might might be kind of heartened and encouraged by the fact that his legacy of craftsmanship is still alive and well and, and that members of his family are still using these pieces. And I hope they'll stay alive and well for many years to come. But, but creating something with our hands to leave as a legacy is one thing. That's a, that's a temporary legacy. Leaving an eternal legacy by helping to shape the heart and mind and soul of another person is well, there's a legacy, nothing else like it. I absolutely love being a grandfather to our six grandchildren. There's nothing like that. The only moment that I can tell you that brings somewhat of an equal kind of joy is when I have the privilege of baptizing a youth whose parents I baptized a generation before. Now, I'm telling you, there's something humbling and joyful about that moment. How many spiritual grandchildren do you have? Are you multiplying your faith by sitting in this chair, the disciple-maker chair? And there are multiple scriptures that provide insight and motivation to be chair for kinds of Christians. As a matter of fact, this is the very goal for every believer to reach this chair as soon as possible in our journey of faith. And if I don't get here, I have failed in some form or fashion in living up to the purpose, the divine purpose that God placed in my heart and mind and every Christian's heart and mind. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. That's the invitation to be chair for disciple makers. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. That's an example of in word and in deed being an, a, a light to dark corners. So the people can see what you're doing and be drawn to God. John 15, uh, that, that passage that Dan Spader in the video a few minutes ago referenced. It begins like this. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Jesus says, if you're a believer, if you have, if you're a branch from the vine, you have this one goal, to bear much fruit. That's an invitation to be sitting in this chair. Chair four, the disciple maker. So how did Jesus live out chair four? I mean, after all, I can't think of a better model than Jesus. What did he do that we can practice in our own lives? Well, let me give you four simple steps that we see from his earthly ministry. These are not new. There is no aha moment in this sermon. Okay, you know all this stuff. But these are sound principles to emulate. I just want to remind you of things that, well, sometimes we just get busy and forget about. Okay, here's the first one. Spend time with people. You want to be a chair for disciple maker, you got to spend time with people. When you read through the Gospels, where do you find Jesus spending his time? In the dusty recesses of the temple, pouring over ancient scrolls written by rabbis about God's word? No, no. He's out among the people. And this is where this analogy breaks down a little bit. What do we do in chairs? We sit. This is not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to go out among the people, get to know people. This is no time for sitting around. This is a time for moving out. Find ways to be with people. Now, I, I realize, I realize not everyone is gregarious. Years ago, uh, Jim and Jennifer France were members of this congregation. Jim was one of our elders at the time. I've never met anybody like Jim France. Uh, his, his ability to get around to see people, his smile, his laughter. I, I don't know that there was hardly anybody he didn't connect with on a Sunday morning. Even if you tried to stay away from Jim, I don't think you could uh, at that day and time. He just was all over the place and made everybody feel so welcome. They moved away from here a lot of years ago, but, but I still miss Jim. But I also realize that Jim's one of a kind, that there are few people like him. There are a lot more people like the rest of us that are not naturally gregarious to get out there and meet people. We're more comfortable one-on-one. -on -one. Here's the good news. You don't have to be gregarious. As a matter of fact, making disciples is not done in a large group. It is done one-on-one. -on -one. You want to sit in this chair and you feel like you do better one-on-one -on -one? you've got it. That's the place where it is. It's just that you have to build that one-on-one -on -one relationship. You can't just sit back and do nothing. Gone are the days when an invitation to a church service will convince someone to come to faith. At one time, you invited somebody to come to church, and, and they came to church, and well, maybe in the near future, they became believers. But according to Pew Research, nearly one quarter of Americans claim no religious affiliation today. Additionally, 48% are post-Christian, which means our country is officially post as in after Christian. Now, we hear these statistics, and, and I want you to know that the good news is that the percentage of people that go to church has remained pretty constant for the last several decades. The, the problem that we're beginning to see is that the younger generations aren't stepping up to embrace it uh, like they once did. Uh, and here's the other thing, is that we've become so accustomed to this that we forget what it means to be a Christian. John O'Sullivan defines it like this. A post-Christian society is not merely a society which is take, uh, in which an agnosticism or atheism is the prevailing fundamental belief. It is a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have been either rejected or worse, forgotten. Most of us, it's not rejected. It's just forgotten. It's become so commonplace that we go through the motions without thinking of what those motions mean. 
So spending time with people one-on-one is how we will best communicate Jesus Christ and become chair for people. So you just can't sit in the chair. You have to reach out to somebody else with the message. That's, that's one thing I see in Jesus. He spent time with people. Number two, identify connecting points. Uh, Jesus was always connecting with people at different levels in their lives. Now, I enjoy talking to our grandkids about their friends as they grow. And what I've noticed is as they, as they get a little bit older, their arena of really good friends or best friends continues to, to narrow a bit. Uh, part of that is, that, you know, they've told me that some kids aren't, aren't real nice, and so they're not friends with them. And some kids just don't seem to be on their radar or vice versa. But their best friends, I've noticed, are those friends that they, they like to do the same things or they have the same values. And so they're beginning to develop those closer relationships based on connecting points. That's what we adults do all the time. We connect with people on certain connecting points. And we'll always be more effective at building chair for relationships where there are connections. And you say, well, what kind of connections are you talking about? Well, here's just a few. Age. Age is a connecting point. Now, I got to tell you, I really, I truly enjoy being with the young people of this congregation. We have some awesome teens and young adults around here. Uh, and when I have the privilege of spending time with them, I am energized and come away hopeful. We, we've got the best youth in the world. They are, just by being here, encouragers to me. But the people I connect best with are those of a similar age or lifestyle with me. For instance, I connect with those who know what a rotary phone is, who used a window crank in a car at one time, and who can remember aluminum Christmas trees. I connect with people who share my fear that polyester bell-bottoms and leisure suits may someday be in vogue again. And speaking of Vogue, I connect with those who remember the Vogues and the great music that they had. Had a high school friend who had an had a eight-track of the Vogues. I connect with people who used to have eight-tracks, uh, you know, from that standpoint. I connect with people who, when I quote a line from Andy Griffith, can finish the line before I do and then tell me what episode it is from. You see, when you connect common things from periods of history like music, clothing styles, first cars, third grade teachers, favorite movies, and et cetera. It's easy. It's easy to connect with folks like that. So age is a connecting point. Here's something else that's a connecting point, and that's locality. I grew up in southern Indiana, so I connect with people from the Midwest. There's something about the values and the lifestyle of the Midwest that, that well, I just understand better than people who live either on the left, west coast or the uh, east coast or somewhere else in between. Or when you've been to some special locality, like a vacation spot that's a favorite place of yours, and you meet somebody else that it's a favorite vacation spot for them, why, you connect. When I had the opportunity a few years ago to teach in Eastern Europe for TCM, inevitably, when one of the students would find out that I was from the United States, would, would ask me after class, oh, I have a friend named Oleg who moved to New York. Do you know him? You know, they, they would forget that the United States is this big place, but there was a connecting point for them. Uh, just after I had come back from teaching in Moldova, uh, Elsie and I were on our vacation, and we were in uh, Yellowstone National Park. And one day we were into one of the little stores there in the camp. I had an ice cream 
parlor counter and his snacks and all different kinds of supplies there. And there was a young man with a, with a very uh, distinct European accent working at the ice cream uh, counter. And I asked him, I said, where are you from? He said, you wouldn't know it. I said, try me. He said, I'm from Moldova. And I said, I just returned from Moldova. And I said, you have a, the people of your country are absolutely wonderful. His eyes lit up. I thought he was going to leap over the counter and give me a hug. <laughs> he was here working for the summer. Uh, and then he was going to go back home. He was trying to earn, earn money for, for education uh, down the road. Every time we were in that little store and he spotted me, the smile would go from ear to ear and he would wave. We had a connecting point. And that connecting point was based on a locality. Hobbies and interests are connecting points. Old cars, aviation history, riding wood, woodworking and wood carving are, are hobbies of mine. They are easy points of connection for me. What about you? What do you like to do in your spare time? Is it a sport? Is it some kind of thing that you do at your house? Is it, is it some style of reading? What is it that you enjoy doing? Because that becomes a natural connecting point for you with other people. Here's another one, suffering. We don't often think about it, but suffering is a connecting point. It is true what the old expression it says, misery loves company. Hurting people gravitate toward others who have experienced a similar trial or pain. Cancer patients connect with those who have endured chemo or radiation treatments. Struggling parents long to hear how other struggling parents adjusted to life with an estranged child or daughter. Losing a loved one becomes a point of understanding when you have lost a loved one. So, take advantage of the connecting points to connect with other people. Take time to identify them. And then remember this, it, it's going to take a while for all of this to come to bear. It's not going to happen overnight. Patience is the key. I like this quote. Patience is not an ability to wait, but the ability to keep a good attitude while you wait. I also like this one. Patience is what parents have when there are witnesses. <laughs> I don't know of any profession that demands patience quite like that of a farmer. A farmer waits for the seasons to work their magic. The seed goes into the ground sometime in the spring. And the farmer watches through summer into fall, waiting for that harvest to come just right. And if a farmer can't wait, what if, he, what if he goes out and harvests the corn crop before the corn tassels? He gets nothing. You see, patience always brings the harvest. So look for your connecting points and, and be patient as you seek them. Here's number three. Spend time modeling and equipping. Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, even miraculously feeding them on at least two occasions. But he invested three years of his life in a small band of brothers. And he spent that time modeling the life he desired for them and equipping them to do the work that he would give them. And that small band of 12 changed their world. Learning, you see, is intended to be a lifelong process. And really, learning is fun. I've told Elsie several times that one of my regrets is that I never learned how to weld from her dad. My father-in-law's nickname, he was a farmer, his nickname was Tinker because he could fix just about anything. I learned a lot from him, but I never took the time to learn how to weld. I wish I had. 
You see, I want to learn from those who are just a little bit older than I am on how to work on the older cars or fix things that maybe I'm not too familiar with. And I want to learn from the younger generation on how to do better with technology and how to make the most of that, which is brand new to us all. Here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to model genuine faith, teach the truth of his word, come alongside others as they grow, and then equip them to become disciple makers and repeat this process. All across generational lines. Older generation, younger generation, middle generation. You see, there is no cultural line drawn here. There is no social line drawn here. There is no generational line drawn here. God wants us to spend time modeling and equipping with everyone. That's what this chair for business is all about. It's all about communicating God's grace and the gospel in a way that makes it winsome and relevant. Too often we barge in with theological guns blazing and do more harm than good. Jesus never compromised the truth, but he always wrapped it in compassion like a gift. Andy Stanley said, the right message with the wrong approach yields the wrong results. So, keep modeling the right attitude that points others to Christ not to us. And and, and then the fourth way of being in the fourth chair is simply empower others to serve. Chair four is the one with the basin and the towel because that's how Jesus taught and modeled for his disciples a servant heart and attitude. Now, I think Jesus had a a, a grand way of recognizing the potential in somebody else. And you say, well, we can't recognize what he recognized. Well, 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 wait a minute. We we do have discernment. We, we, We do have the ability to look into somebody's life and recognize certain talents. You know when somebody is gifted musically or scholastically or athletically. Some people are naturally good at the ability of persuading and convincing. You know, we say they could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. It's because they just have this ability to communicate. Recognize the giftedness of others and continue to coach them as you send them out to be disciple makers. Help them use what God has given to them for God's glory. And you don't need my permission to do this. You don't need the permission of some board or religious group. You've already got the Lord's commission to go out and do this. This is for every Christian. This is our purpose, which is why it is so important to get here. If we never get to chair four, we've never attained the purpose that God has for us in his kingdom. You say, well, now that's all well and good, preacher, but I don't want to offend anybody, and I certainly don't want to be accused of proselytizing as if I have all the answers or come across like I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Shouldn't I just live a good life, quiet life, and let others figure it out on their own? Well, I understand the way you feel. I really do. And I've never quite figured out why it's awkward to talk about our faith when it isn't awkward to talk about the Cubs or the Tigers or the Reds or the best one, the Cardinals. And political correctness, political correctness has deemed it inappropriate, even arrogant, to suggest that one faith is superior to another faith or no faith at all. So I get it. I understand and if it makes you feel any better, it's, this, is, this is hard for me. This does not come natural for me. The last thing I want to do is to offend or to appear haughty or to come across spiritually condescending. I don't want to be that either. But this question nags at me. 
Do I really believe what I claim to believe? Do I really believe that Scripture is God's revelation to us and that Jesus came to save us? Do I really believe that Jesus meant what he said in answer to Thomas's probing question on the night before the cross when Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We sang it earlier. Did you believe what you sang? You see, if we genuinely believe that, then this chair for principle isn't some project for a celestial grade. It isn't about carving another notch on our Bible spline as if we're somehow bounty hunters for Jesus. People are not projects. I don't want to be anybody's project. And neither do the folks around us want to be our projects. But, but if a friend can genuinely help improve my life in this world, I'm all ears, folks. I'll take all the help, wisdom, and advice I can get to make it through this life. And if a friend helps spare me from harm or a major loss in my life, I will be forever grateful. If I was about to take something poison, thinking that it was medicine, and you stopped me, I would not consider you meddlesome or haughty or condescending. I would consider you a lifesaver. Do you feel the same? You see, if that's true with this life, how much more then is it true of the life to come? And somebody's bound to say, yes, but what if we're wrong about what we believe? What if the grave ends all and there is nothing afterwards? What if this life is just limited to this life? Are, are you familiar with Pascal's wager? The 17th century philosopher, mathematician, and physicist, Blaise Pascal, argued that a rational person should live as though God exists and seeks to believe in him. If in the end it is not true and God does not actually exist, we lose nothing. But if in the end it is true and God exists, then we have gained everything and those who have chosen not to believe have lost everything. Thus, the term Pascal's wager. He theorized that humans bet with their lives that God exists or does not. And that's a wager that has eternal consequences. Is that a wager you'll let a friend, loved one, coworker, or neighbor take on a whim? Will you, like Pontius Pilate, just try to wash your hands of the responsibility of it all? Will you let someone you care about make a dangerous choice without at least having one conversation with them? What kind of a person am I to be so cruel as to ignore the eternal consequences for those that I love because I'm afraid they might take me wrong? Remember, the religions of the world all make contradictory claims. We don't all believe the same things. Therefore, all cannot be right. All could be wrong. Yes, it's true. But all cannot be right. I have searched. I suspect you have too. I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ settles the claims and the promises in my mind once and for all. And I wish I had time to go through why I believe that. That's, that's for another day. That's for another sermon. But there's, there's plenty out there to be convincing. I believe that Christianity is the most reasonable and logical. And I believe that chair four is where we need to get to, to be able to teach 
and model in the most winsome way possible so as many will find their way home through him. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.